Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you're new with us, we've been going through the gospel according to Luke uh, for this last year, and this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, verses 1 through 20. When I say the word evangelism, I am sure that many of us probably shudder at the thought of it. You may be thinking, is this going to be one of those sermons where the pastor tells me I need to evangelize more? Maybe. (laughs) As I mentioned last week, one of our greatest threats, one of the greatest threats you and I face as Western Christians may not be the fear of death for our faith, but fear of rejection, fear of shame, fear of ridicule, all of which are possible when we live out our faith and when we share our faith with others. This fear is one of the reasons that most of us do not evangelize, do not share our faith with others. And we can be honest, if there is one aspect of our Christian walk that is often more neglected than others, it is the call and the commission to share the gospel with those around us. Now, I know this is not necessarily everyone, but it does uh, include many. Uh, It's easier to come to church on Sundays, it's easier to go to Bible study and things of that nature than it is to share uh, our faith. Yet, as we will see in this text in Luke chapter 10, as the disciples of Christ, we must have an urgency in our gospel proclamation because Christ has come, Christ will come again, and His righteous judgment is on the horizon. This isn't something only reserved for missionaries who commit their lives to taking the gospel across the globe, but it's a commission that has been passed down to all of us who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. And the light of God's truth dims across our land, while the depravity and unbelief warned of in Romans 1 runs rampant. Immorality parades proudly in the streets and darkness is championed. We all know this very well. And the reality is this, when we think about evangelism, when we think about this passage that we're going to be in today, Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. You've probably heard that if you've been in the church. And yet the reality of hell is one of the more unpopular subjects of Christianity. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to address it. It doesn't feel good. Even those of us who say we believe in hell do so barely because if we truly believed it was the destiny for those who reject Christ and a place of eternal judgment, it would change our passion to evangelize the lost around us. And so in our passage today from Luke chapter 10... We see Jesus sending out followers into a hostile world, laborers seeking to reap a great harvest of souls. And just as he mobilized the 72 disciples then that we will read about, Jesus mobilizes us today, you and I as Christians, for the same mission as we have been adopted into the family of God. And the need remains great. 
People still need to hear the gospel. The harvest is still plentiful and the message is the same. As one author wrote, wherever there is human misery, regardless of its cause, Christians are sent to lessen it. Wherever there is hatred, they are to stimulate love. Wherever there is a lie, they are to speak truth. This is a high calling, a calling that has been passed down to each of us as Christians. But this mission is not a fool's errand. Christ promises to go with us in His Spirit, which we've already sung about. He promises to grant us power, protection, and fruit for our gospel labors. Though dangers may abound, and they certainly do, the harvest is plentiful. So we need not, church, shrink back in fear. Let us follow the Christ-exalting example of the 72 disciples proclaiming the good news of salvation to all who will listen. Many still await, many still await the summons to new life in Christ, and let us celebrate when God calls in His harvest through our proclamation. And so in His strength and authority, let us go boldly, let us speak boldly and take up this task. So this morning we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of His Word. If you're able, would you stand as, we, as I read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Pray with me. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive the truth of your word. May it be spoken with clarity, and may it be an encouragement and a challenge to each one of us to assume this commission that you have passed down to us with judgment on the horizon to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you were with us last week, as we considered the last verses of chapter 9, we noticed that in verse 951, it served as a transitional verse from Luke 1.1 to Luke 9.50. 9.50, and then 51, 9.51 through Luke 19 is a almost separate set uh, of teachings. 9, uh, 1 1 through 950 was Jesus fulfilling the prophecies and who he was and proclaiming who he was. And then up through 19, we see this commission, this, uh, this uh, teaching, preparing his disciples for his departure. And so, in the previous section that we considered last week, Jesus plainly stated the demands of discipleship. That is, what he requires out of those who would follow him, which is full commitment to him above everything else. Else in this world. And now we see that Jesus commissions all of those who would follow after him to share the gospel, the truth of Christ, and his kingdom with the world around us. And so, with all this said, I'm going to make a few observations from this text. And the first observation I want to make is this the sovereign authority of the Son to send out laborers. The sovereign authority of the Son to send out laborers. Look at verses 1 and 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Luke 10 begins very similarly to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus sending out the 12, the 12 disciples that he had called to be a part of his small group of individuals. Now he's sending out 72. Now, this larger group of disciples under Jesus' authority was commissioned by him to go out two by two for the purpose of healing the sick and declaring the nearness of the kingdom of God to people in light of Jesus' imminent arrival in their town. We see this in verse 9. And so this mission was no casual endeavor, but a strategic mobilization of workers for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And so when Jesus sends out the 72... He declares that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers, the laborers, are few. Now, this metaphorical harvest represents people ready to receive the gospel. I don't think that any of us would conclude that Jesus is telling them to go out and and do agricultural work, right? So this metaphor is Jesus pointing to them and saying, the harvest is plentiful. The people ready to receive the gospel are out there. And though sending them into a fallen, sin-sick world, Jesus assures ripe fields, multitudes prepared for God's kingdom, but insufficient laborers to gather them. 
The 72, this is a much larger group than 12, is it not? The 72, though a larger workforce, still lacked the numbers to spread the message far and wide. And so Jesus instructs them, pray for more harvesters. Pray for more laborers. The Lord of the harvest must mobilize more workers to proclaim the good news to receptive crowds. And amidst, amid this lost world, seeking hearts wait for urgent messengers to show them the way into Christ's kingdom. And so Jesus compels His followers to realize the ready harvest and join Him in gathering it. You're far more prepared to believe, Jesus is saying. There are far more people out there prepared to believe than those willing to go and tell them. Now let's pause on this harvest metaphor for just a moment. Jesus is saying the harvest is plentiful. Why would he say that? Well, that's because the harvest belongs to God alone. And as Lord of the harvest, God prepared the ripe fields. It wasn't the laborers who prepared these fields. The laborers are sent out to gather them. God alone prepares these fields. He sends out workers to reap what He has sown, what He is doing. And what this does for you and I, church, is this fosters confidence in evangelism. You see, the harvest is ripe because God has made it ripe. He intentionally chooses and commissions laborers just as He selected and sent the 72 disciples. Likewise, Christ appoints each of us today for this very task, but do not miss this. The fruit depends on Him alone. We plant, we water the seed through gospel proclamation. Yet only God brings regeneration and growth, 1 Corinthians 3, 7. He prepares the hearts of His hearers for the kingdom. We are merely servants gathering the harvest the Master has made right, and the results rely fully on His sovereign work, not ours. Our role is obedience in scattering the seed of His Word and watering as He leads. Now, there are two things about this that should encourage us and really fuel us as believers to be more proactive in evangelism. First, this shows us that as disciples of Jesus Christ, you and I, as we go out into this world, as we take the gospel to this lost world, you and I do not go out into this world in our own power. We don't go out into this world in our own wisdom, and we do not go out into this world to sow gospel, uh, gospel seed based upon our own clever initiative. Rather, we go in the sovereign authority and under the direction of Jesus Christ. We are His ambassadors. We are chosen, appointed, and sent to do His will and empowered by His Spirit. And so when we evangelize our neighbors, when we minister to the hurting, and we make disciples of all nations, we do so on the very authority of the Son of the living God. We are His representatives. We are His envoys, speaking and serving in His name. What an astounding and humbling truth. I don't know you. 
necessarily, I know you, I guess, I do know you, that's a wrong statement, I know a lot of you. I don't know what you think about yourself, I don't know your struggles necessarily, this, that, and the other. I know my own temptations, my own depravity, and these things. And to think about the reality that Jesus would not only save me, but then commission me to go out and tell others about Him is a humbling thing. And when we think about this, you see, one of the reasons that you and I look past the urgency of gospel proclamation is because we miss this very point. Much of the fear that sets in within us that keeps you and I from telling our neighbor about Christ, from telling our coworker about Christ, or our unbelieving family member, is because we are relying too heavily upon our own strength, our own wisdom, and our own knowledge. We forget that those who have been redeemed by Christ, we've been sent out into this world with the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit within us to share Christ to those in need of Him. We put so much stock in our own efforts, in our own abilities, and in our own ingenuity that the simple thought that we may say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing when telling others about Christ cripples us into silence. But we must think less of ourselves, church, and more of Christ. Christ sovereignly chose and commissioned us in His power to take the gospel. Secondly, we have confidence in knowing that the harvest is plentiful. We have confidence in knowing that the harvest is plentiful. What does this mean? Again, this is where we often put too much stock in our own efforts when we share Christ with others. Once more, in our evangelism, maybe you've thought this, I know I have, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I say something that's not right about God? What if I lead someone astray? What if I don't know the answer? What if dot, 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 you fill in the blank. Well, church, when we lose sight of the sovereignty of God in salvation, we can what-if ourselves into oblivion. Lying awake at night in great angst, thinking that someone is going to go to hell because we may or may not have been clear in our, as clear in our gospel presentation as we wanted to be, and they did not respond in repentance and faith. I want you to know this. God is the only one who can give people ears to hear and hearts ready to receive and respond to the gospel message. No amount of eloquence, no amount of learning, no amount of knowledge is good enough or strong enough to bring any human being from spiritual death into the kingdom of God. Billy Graham didn't possess the power to do that. We must tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ and leave the results to God. This is the only thing that enables me to get up here week in and week out, knowing that your salvation and your standing with God is not contingent upon whether I am eloquent and clear in everything I say. Or else I'd lay awake at night miserable and depressed. King Agrippa asked Paul to persuade him to be a Christian in Acts 26. 
27 through 29, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would go, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I would assume, I would assume that the Apostle Paul was quite a great speaker and evangelist. Would, would we not? Yes, we read the New Testament. And yet we're not given an account here after this that Agrippa even believed. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen, the harvest is plentiful. They're out there, ready to hear the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said, we don't know who they are. If all of the elect had white stripes painted on their backs, we'd walk around pulling up coattails, but they don't. So we share the gospel with all. We pray for more laborers, and maybe that is starting with us. Maybe we need to begin to labor in the proclamation of the gospel with those around us. The labor and the harvest are one of the most beautiful and fulfilling opportunities and privileges that God gives to His people. Look, He can do it without us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He needs nothing because He's God. But He chooses to do it with us. He gives us the privilege of bringing in the harvest of His people. Let us be faithful heralds of the gospel and faithful in our prayers for more laborers. Second observation. The dangers, difficulties, and urgency of evangelism. We see this in verses 3 through 12. So Jesus gives them instructions on how to go about their mission. And so the immediate answer to their prayer for more workers is that they themselves will fulfill this role. Jesus wants them to fully count the cost of spreading the gospel faithfully. The mission will not be easy. There will be hazards. There will be difficulties. Jesus bluntly tells them that I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Vivid imagery for what awaits them. The message of Christ, and all of us know this, the message of Christ will not always be welcomed with open arms. Persecution often awaits those who proclaim the gospel. As one commentator wrote, no person needs to be surprised when the world treats them badly. The servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted him, Jesus, they will persecute you. And this warning is true. The New Testament repeatedly cautions Jesus' followers to prepare for, for affliction. And so when we think about evangelism, we must view evangelism and we must view ministry with clear eyes, not rose-tinted glasses. Hardship stands ever at the door for those committed to spreading the gospel. And the danger and difficulty of evangelism is one of the things that often keeps us from sharing the gospel. As lambs among wolves, we fear persecution. Yet Jesus still commissions us to go out, urgently spreading His message as the day of judgment draws near. What does that mean? That means there is no time to lose, church. Those sent cannot be burdened with extra luggage, he says, or distracted with idle chatter along the road, he says in verse 4. The harvest is ripe and must be gathered immediately. And as disciples proclaim the gospel, they come as ambassadors of peace, he says in verse 5. 
And when welcomed peacefully, they can stay in a home with a clear conscience, knowing the blessing outweighs the cost of their support, we see in verses 7 and 8. But the urgency remains the same, which is what Jesus follows up with here. With Christ's return looming, with His ascension going to happen, and then His return looming, we cannot delay in spreading the good news despite the risks. As lambs among wolves, we must have courage to fulfill our commission. And the primary purpose of the disciples' mission we see in verse 9, and that is to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. Now this one phrase, this proclamation that the kingdom of God has come near, this slogan encapsulates the entire gospel message. For the Old Testament Jews, the kingdom of God was a distant future hope. But now that hope has broken into the present, the kingdom is right here in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is right among them. The long-awaited kingdom has arrived in Jesus the Messiah. And so the disciples must announce that this supreme moment is at hand. If people rejected the message of the disciples themselves, Jesus says that judgment will be more tolerable for Sodom than for those who reject the gospel of Christ's kingdom. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is near. This urgent news must be proclaimed even to those who may not welcome it. Now Jesus' statement that rejecting Him would bring worse judgment than Sodom's destruction is shocking. It immediately, if you know the Old Testament and you look back to Genesis chapter 19, it immediately reminds us of God raining fire on Sodom for its wickedness, for its unbelief. And so Jesus is underscoring this terrible consequence, the terrible consequences of rejecting His kingdom message. And this comparison, especially for his original audience, this comparison of these consequences and what would await them would have been jarring. Those who hear the gospel but do not yield face a more severe judgment than even the infamous destroyed city of Sodom. Sodom represented the archetype of God's wrath against those rejecting His rule. Now, with the explicit call of the gospel, with what has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ, we are even more accountable than pagan Sodom was. Jesus' words underline the urgency of heeding His message when we hear it, to reject the kingdom's nearness brings inexcusable condemnation. That's what he's saying. And the potential of future judgment should urgently compel our evangelism. If we believe the unrepentant will face God's eternal wrath, how much more should you and I diligently share the gospel with them while there is still time? The older you get, the more you realize this. I always talk about like I'm an old man. I feel like I am. You're not guaranteed to more, church. Nobody is. We've lived long enough to see young and old pass away. And this reminder spurs Christians onward. We live in the era before the final judgment. 
Now is the time to spread the kingdom message around our communities, around our workplaces, around our schools, wherever the Lord would send us. And though the world's hostility towards Christians or towards Christ increases, we are not authorized to execute judgment. Rather, we preach the gospel warning that the day of reckoning approaches. But we leave the final judgment to God as that day draws near. Our roles is urgent. Our role is urgent proclamation before it's too late. The looming reality of condemnation should motivate us to evangelize with discipline and diligence while we still can. Third observation. In evangelism, do not fear rejection. So Jesus in verses 13 through 16 goes on to say, woe to these places and pointing again to the judgment. And then he says in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Again, and this is true, I think it's true, I believe it's true, fear of rejection is a major hurdle to evangelism. Fear of rejection is a major hurdle in evangelism. But when this fear arises, what you and I must ask ourselves as Christians, who or what is really being rejected? Who or what is really being rejected? Well, Jesus makes it clear. Those who reject His followers and reject their message are ultimately rejecting Him and His kingdom. And so by keeping the focus on the kingdom rather than on ourselves, we can persevere despite fear. And the urgency of the gospel compels us no matter the response. While rejection stings, we remember it is Christ and His good news being spurned, being rejected, being turned away. And this kingdom focus empowers us to press on in proclamation, leaving the judgment again to God. And so like those who reject Christ, and like the illustration of Sodom, Jesus goes on to pronounce an oracle of doom against contemporary cities who have heard the gospel. God's judgment on Sodom and that predicted by the prophets for the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon were in the Jewish mind a potent symbol of the expected fate of those outside God's chosen people. And so to take those and to apply those models to ordinary Jewish towns in Galilee, even to Jesus' own home base of Capernaum, was profoundly shocking. To imply that Sodom to Tyre and to Sidon would fare better than the Jewish town where Jesus had performed many of His miracles would be quite the stirring statement once more. But what Jesus is saying is this. The greater judgment comes with the greater light. The greater judgment comes with the greater light. The more light you have been given to the things of God, the more information you have been given about the kingdom of God, the more liable you are for your response to that message. This is why it matters very much how people respond to the message of Jesus and His disciples. To reject the message is to forget the only means by which we humans come to the knowledge of God. And in the ministry of Jesus... This salvation has now been made available to Jews as God's people for them to turn away from this ultimate way of salvation now that it has been revealed in Jesus is even more disastrous than the paganism of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. 
and it incurs an even more severe judgment. In church, the same danger remains today. We have been given the full revelation of the gospel and to reject it after this greater light rejects the only path to God. And having heard the message of Christ, we are without excuse as all of those to whom we evangelize. But notice what Jesus says about the rejection of this message and its messengers. If someone rejects you when you share the good news of the kingdom of God with them, it is not a blatant rejection of you. It is a rejection of Christ and the Father who sent him, which is an action that has long-term consequences, he says in verse 16. Additionally, to receive a messenger of the kingdom is akin to receiving the king himself. Receiving the gospel from Christ's ambassadors is embracing Christ himself. As messengers of Christ, evangelizing the lost, our message of repentance and faith is his message. Rejection of Christ's messengers is a blatant rejection of Christ. And listen, there is no doubt that some rejected the preaching of the 72 as foolishness, but the disciples were not to let resistance hinder their mission. As modern-day disciples, Christians, this remains true for us. As those who carry with us the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I represent, again, the Lord Jesus Himself. And when we share the good news of salvation, we speak on Christ's authority. Yet, sadly still, many will reject our message as they rejected Jesus. When our family, when our friends, when our neighbors dismiss the gospel, it hurts deeply, does it not? We long to see them repent. We long to see them believe. But we must not let their rejection discourage or deter our evangelistic fervor. For we know Christ and His Word are truth. No matter how loudly scoffers may protest against us, the Gospel remains, as Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation. And we must declare it faithfully, leaving the results to our sovereign God. Though some reject the gospel, church, be encouraged. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful. By God's grace, many still welcome the word of life. Lift your eyes above this fallen world. Keep proclaiming the good news of salvation regardless of responses. Our reward is not in this life, but it's in heaven as we see many brought to glory through our faithful witness. Despite rejection, the fields are still ripe. Focus on those receptive to the message through the Spirit's work. Our labor in the Lord is never in vain as heaven's rolls swell with new believers. Persevere in joyful evangelism, resting in eternal rewards rather than earthly results. Fourth observation, rejoice in your salvation. Look at 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord... Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So sent as vulnerable lambs among wolves, we might expect the disciples to return defeated. Think about that. You're going out as lambs to wolves. You would expect them to come back and be licking their wounds, if you will. 
But despite the hardships, they came back with joy and astonishment. They had experienced Christ's power and authority in unexpected ways. Even hostile demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. And so rather than discouragement, the disciples, the 72, found His provision sufficient against these spiritual forces. Where Christ is proclaimed, the demonic realm is trampled underfoot. And so this astonished the 72 that had gone out. They saw firsthand that lifting up Christ's name subjugated dark powers. And though sent in weakness, the disciples found His strength made perfect. Their joyful amazement testified to Christ's supremacy over every evil, working mightily through those who carry His message. And Jesus warned Capernaum that they'd be cast down to Hades like the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, 13 through 15. But now he applies this judgment to Satan who he said fell, he saw fall like lightning from heaven. And the disciples' ministry of proclamation, their ministry of healing, their ministry of exorcism sent shockwaves through the spiritual realm unknown to them. Yet it was not their own power. Jesus had authorized them to overcome all the power of the enemy. And so their victories were fully attributable, attributable to Christ's authority, not their own. And so through their obedience, Jesus' kingdom was plundering Satan's domain. Their evangelism and the miracles were dismantling the devil's work. But the credit belonged to Jesus alone who enabled their victory over dark powers. The disciples, think about it, must have been thrilled to see God's power on display. But we cannot miss this last thing Jesus says. Mere earthly success misses the heart of salvation. Amid their celebration, Jesus wisely refocuses their joy. He says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. More than miracles, he says, the greatest joy is knowing by God's sheer grace that our citizenship is in heaven. To have one's name recorded there means God Himself inscribed it for eternity past in the Lamb's book of life. And Jesus reminds them that spiritual realities eclipse temporary victories. Ultimate joy is not found in supernatural success, but in the eternal belonging secured by God alone. No achievement, whether that be in the church or in your spiritual life or whatever the case may be, no achievement surpasses being named among Christ's forever family. Jesus centers their joy on heavenly realities guarding their hearts from prideful celebration. Amid excitement, he point, points to the greater wonder, which is redemption, granted by grace. Church, seeing God work through us is a blessing. As our growth, as our both growth and fruitful ministry. But God grants an even greater gift, writing our names in heaven. He brings us into an unbreakable relationship to be fully realized in heaven's joys. 
And this flows only from Christ's work, not ours. Our boasting is in Him alone. Praise and glory belong to Jesus. He accomplished our redemption through His sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. And by grace through faith, we are commissioned now to take that message to the world. Our service and our accomplishments pale next to the eternal belonging secured in Christ. We put no hope in our efforts, but wholly in His finished work. And God uses us according to His purposes. Yet our names are written heavenward through Christ's blood. Christ urgently commissions us as His chosen people, endowed with heaven's ministry and heaven's authority. Let us boldly open our mouths plainly speaking His gospel and warning of the coming judgment. Though hardships await, Christ builds His church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. His power works through us, guaranteeing fruit in the plentiful harvest, and let us devote ourselves to evangelism. And I'll leave you with a couple questions. Who will you share Christ with this week? Take time to share the gospel, perhaps planting seeds for future harvest. Or reflect on the salvation that's been given to you, rejoicing that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We can grow callous to this profound gift if we're not careful. Nonetheless, with fearless diligence and fervor, be steadfast in the Lord's work as He sends us out equipped with His authority. Pray with me.